Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, our podcast dedicated to all things related to data privacy and data security with all sorts of technology in between. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, recording from my home office in Southwest London. So in this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about self-sovereign identity, that's SSI, and following on from a previous podcast we did a couple of months ago. We're going to talk about more of the uses of this solution topic and how more and more organisations are starting to take notice of self-sovereign identity. So today I'm delighted to introduce my two guests. So I have Kalik Maliki and Jimmy Snook, who are both currently residing in Netherlands, uh, joining me remotely today. And they are co-founders of the award-winning digital ID company called Tykin. So we have Khalid Maliki. He is the, as I said, the co-founder. Khalid has had many years working in technology as a user designer at the Dutch Ministry of Interior. And he has founded Tykin um, because he's a big belief in self-sovereign identity and the impact that it can make on billions of people's lives around the world. He has talked to organizations at the Economic Forum in Africa and to the United Nations in New York. So welcome, Khalid. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Welcome. Uh, I also have Jimmy Snook. He's a CEO and co-founder as well. Um, Jimmy was a musician and is now a business developer and entrepreneur, as I said, residing in the Netherlands. And he has now become one of our key evangelists of data privacy and an early adopter of crypto. And Jimmy also has spoken about the merits of blockchain and self-sovereign identity at conferences and institutions worldwide since 2017. Uh, and he's even appeared in The Guardian, one of our UK papers. So, so welcome to you, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you for having us as well. It was It's really delighted to be invited uh, also because we really enjoyed uh, the podcast with James, who we've known for quite a while as well. Yeah, it's really wonderful to have these two companies on the show. I'm very happy. And also, you're both musicians. <laughs> it's a great thing that you are musicians and, and now here you are in the technology world. So how did you meet? Why Tykin? And how did it get off the ground? Yeah, not even through the musicianship. That's something we found out much later. Because I'd quit as a well musician, at least professionally, few years before that, Khaled as well. And and this is something we found out after like months of working together, I think, <laughs> because we met Khaled already entered into uh, Rockstar Accelerator uh, with Tykin as an idea. idea. I ended up joining because I, I thought the idea was great, you know, coming both from the crypto space, from blockchain space from 2015, 16. Uh, so this huge problem with this potential solution that could be married and ended up building a lot of naive POCs back in 2016, 17, not very useful, broke very quickly, very expensive, but it, it put us on the right track to where we are now. Uh, ended up becoming founding steward of Sovereign, I think the ninth uh, back in June, 2017. It's around the time where we met James as well. Yeah. So how many are there now, these founding stewards of Sovereign? Um, so within Sovereign, I think there's over 80 now. It's grown quite a bit. So we were followed then by... Uh, Cisco, uh, CETA, IBM, yeah, some some large institutions. We all saw that the, the potential merit of the technology and wanted to collaborate on this. So a lot of the code, the technology under Sovereign is also open source. Uh, and all these organizations have, have worked very hard over the past four years to to make that flourish, that, that open source part. So how did you get started in this then, Kalik? 
Well, yeah, like Jimmy said, we uh, assumptions we had in 2016, we thought, you know, let's look at the problem and uh, and the people actually that are on the front line of uh, not having an identity, mm-hmm. uh, which are which in this case are refugees and underserved communities. So our assumption was like, uh, let's uh, throw everything on the blockchain and it's immutable and then the case closed and let's raise some money about it. That that's not GDPR compliant. Not terrible idea. That that idea lasted about a month. <laughs> it's shocking to see. You know, we saw some some people building our POCs about up until the last year with that the same idea, uh, but you know, it, it it didn't take us very long to find out that oh, this is this stuff should never hit the chain ever, um, which which ultimately makes a lot of sense, of course, because you are putting personal identifiable information on something that's completely immutable. And with the metadata correlation problems that we have, how much worse would that be if you couldn't delete it? You know, there's no right to be forgotten uh, because you can't forget. Yeah, true. Yeah, so we started actually in 2016 um, with the ID17. We enrolled in an accelerator in Amsterdam. Jimmy uh, joined us and basically the rest was history. Later that year, we were actually one of the first companies that broker the deal with a large NGO, an international NGO that wants really to uh, research and explore the merits of blockchain and decentralized identity in general. And it was really an honor because we, while everything was standing behind the whiteboards and, you know, fantasizing about SSI and how it would look like in, in a perfect world, we were actually with the feet on the ground uh, with actual people with the real problem. So we came back with a lot of learnings and findings and we said we need to actually start all over again so in terms of your interaction with the ngo were you in the netherlands were you over in syria or how did any of that work i know you've got a great story coming up about a syrian engineer so with this international ngo we had uh, different pilots in different areas in the world so in the the caribbean st martin for example that's where we started Uh, we know that it was hit by a hurricane and a, a lot of databases and information identities were lost and we l- saw that there is a lot of deduplication of onboarding processes for this NGO. So if NGO A comes into play and they want to help people, maybe they need to onboard all those people and they need to assess their needs and their pains. Well, NGO B should actually or could use the same information to help those people in a privacy preserved way. But what they do is just you know start all over again. And it was uh, a confusing uh, way for especially for the the people affected in this in, in this case it was not safe and it was not uh, convenient so those are amazing use cases to be presented with and so talk about the learnings that you had going through that project not just technical i presume why was that such a an enlightening proof of concept or actual live solution delivery and so different from the others is it because there was time criticality was it because you know, people's literally lives might have been at stake. So I think once you go from whiteboard to actually going into the field, you realize that in the real world, there's a lot more variables uh, and things that can go wrong. And a lot of your assumptions often completely just shatter the moment you uh, you actually start to, uh, to implement something. And that is something we saw time and time again. And that's also because a lot of our assumptions are inherent to the world we live in. You know, we are fish in water. So a lot of assumptions that we have in the West, I've grown up with, around, with technology, around technology, around the internet. 
a lot of those assumptions don't particularly hold true in a lot of other situations. Uh, very easy user experience, uh, things such as uh, scrolling through pages, filling out forms, setting a pin code. Those are not per se intuitive actions to, to someone who has not grown up with the technology. And of course, it has to be as inclusive as possible, ultimately. So that is something that is quite important to take into account. But that and that's on the micro level, but on the macro level, also smartphone penetration. A lot of the early uh, self-sovereign identity stack uh, was entirely smartphone exclusive. Okay. That works very well in, in the West where you have smartphone penetration of over 95% in certain situations that of course doesn't hold true. And so early on, with this NGO, and we, we, we can say it publicly, by the way, this is all this most of it is public information. It, it was a, these were projects with the, the Dutch Red Cross. Um, there was also Oxford, uh, where we contributed to a research about digital identity, and, and we contributed to some some of that as well with our learnings, which people can find as well. And some of those learnings really is that early, when especially when the stack was entirely smartphone exclusive, it was very difficult to implement this into areas where people do not per se have a smartphone, where the smartphone penetration is very low or that phone penetration is high in terms of feature phones, but smartphone penetration was still low. And so we were thinking about guardianship models, which, you know, theoretically could work, but then ended up even in theory being quite complex to solve for, uh, let alone implement that technically. So we researched that for a while and, and saw that it wasn't feasible. And so ultimately what we did was that we took a lot of the principles of self-sovereign identity for feature phones, and we ended up uh, taking that and developing uh, an API that would also be compatible with uh, feature phones. So people could make the same interactions in terms of, you know, asking for consent and re receiving credentials and, and sending out proofs and uh, revoking, uh, revoking certain connections and, and, and revoking access to those credentials but instead being able to do it from uh, from feature phones as well to make those interactions also be able to make it easier, abstract away a lot of the complexities, uh, which ended up becoming an important point for us because uh, th there's so many things you can say about security, right? Making something as airtight as possible, you know, that's, that's a fantastic place to start from, but it's not always what you want in certain, under certain conditions. If you build an airtight system, that can't be used by half the population, you know, what's it worth? And for us, it was really about making an impact in terms of improving the status quo. And that for us meant being able to uh, build something out that would allow us to make those, to stick to those same principles in terms of higher control, higher dignity for the people, higher degrees of privacy, but to not force them to have smartphones because that's of, of course entirely infeasible. Yeah, it wouldn't be practical, it's expensive. And as you say, it doesn't ultimately solve the problem that's faced in front of you. Exactly. Just to elaborate on that is that we early found out that, you know, it sounds all amazing and, and good, you know, and technology is promising, but it's not about identity itself. I could give you an identity or, or a way to uh, process that, but it's all about, especially for the most vulnerable people, it's all about access to services, like to the basic human rights. You know, I want to have access to education, to healthcare, to banking. And that's the ultimate goal we were like after as a company. We are a for-profit company. We're not an NGO, but at the end, that's like our mission and vision that we're still, you know, striving for. And um, and at the end, it's how can we make this all the people actually inclusive and the part of society as well. Well, I mean, it's a fantastic goal, and I can only 
imagine that the problems that we've all gone through via COVID and lockdowns has only made it more needed in larger parts of the world. I mean, I can't see it's reduced the need for this kind of solution at all. Absolutely. I mean, it's geographical mobility has become incredibly restricted. Over the past year and a, and a half or so, of course, a lot of the NGOs have been busy with uh, just direct response and governments as well, just helping people directly. Uh, but we're now also getting to the point where it's being thought about, okay, this is something that might become a part of our lives for the long term. And we need to be able to help people with that restricted geographical mobility who are also on the edge of society and who are not as privileged as some other population groups. Wonderful to hear. Really good. So SSI then and how it's growing as a technology and it's um, the, the knowledge of it is per- starting to permeate or is it? Where is it in its growth cycle? Is it still embryonic? I don't hear it talked about a lot, but you know that's no indicator of anything necessarily. I have quite a few things to, to say about this. We saw this uh, Gartner article coming out, uh, which is the, the Gartner Emerging Trends 2021 shows the Gardner hype cycle. In one of the webinars, they had uh, this PDF that they put out and it had a completely different view of decentralized identity SSI as the other article they put out. One they said was peak inflated expectations now and it's two to five years out. And the other said same thing, but five to 10 years out. But from having been through this cycle for the past four years, because we, and same as James, you know, we've been around here for a while since 2016, 17. And from what I saw, 2017, that was peak, peak inflated expectations for SSI. There were companies raising tens of millions of dollars on on nothing, just, just a promise. And everyone thought, us included, if I'm being honest, that in the following two years, this would change the world. But what happened, of course, is that, so we had certain assumptions, and and one of those assumptions is that SSI would be in 2018, where we are now today. And so what ended up happening is that between 2017 and 2019, 2020, we ended up going through the trough of disillusionment, where you didn't hear much about SSI, about decentralized identity, because we were all working our ass off to make sure the technical infrastructure worked because it ended up being quite a bit more complicated than anyone thought. And that is still in the background. You know, some of that is still going on. But now is, in my opinion, where we are entering this slope of enlightenment. You see these uh, products being built out that make it easier to implement SSI. You see uh, production cases as the IATA case that James talked about for the travel pass. Uh, You see larger governments getting involved, Germany and Spain, partnering up to creating a joint uh, self-sovereign identity ecosystem, Canada and the Netherlands, uh, setting up the known traveler identity project for travelers between Montreal and Amsterdam, uh, also based on self-sovereign identity, decentralized identity. So we see a lot of this coming up now, which to me seems more of entering this slope of enlightenment, where we actually start seeing production use cases, opposed to being at the peak of the hype. So I think There's a lot of real work now finally being visible to the rest of the world. And that is what excites me right now, that you see a lot more things coming up, a lot more collaborations popping up, a lot more in real life use cases, and a lot of the, from our part as well, complexity being abstracted, because that is something that we've said as well over the years. Ultimately, we want to build something that 
in the next two years, five years, people have taken completely for granted. And no one should even know that they're using it. In, in the same way that uh, we use email every day, SMS every day, WhatsApp, whatever. Even for email, don't ask me to explain how IMAP works or POP3 or whatever. I don't know. But I use it every day. Yeah. So when you talked about expectations there, were those expectations of investors or businesses? Not per se. I think a lot of our expectations were on the technical front as well. So I remember distinctly us talking about uh, launching these APIs, you know, at the end of 17, early 2018. It ended up taking until about 2021 uh, until it actually went live and into so so those sorts of things and and also expectations in terms of seeing actual use of it actual starting to see production cases because we did already see a lot of investors coming into the space uh, and we also raised between 2017 and, and 2019 that's also when we raised our pre-seed seed uh, up to uh, about 1.6 uh, million euros and so the, the investor part wasn't much of the problem or the the expectation it was more you know what do we see technically happening? How advanced is it? How accessible is it? How easy is it for businesses to, to start using it? And that took a while longer. Yeah, I think like uh, Jimmy said, is uh, when reality hits you in the face and you realize that you, you need also to sell something for a company to survive, right? So that at least our experience as a company, I think it, I can't speak for everyone, but you know, they need, like, like Jimmy said, extract all the complexity. And focusing more not on the use cases themselves, but how can we help businesses to actually help people better. So we want to simplify this implementation of SSI and decentralized identity in their workflows and actually not speak about it. Like Jimmy said, like you see also a shift in the naming, right? It was all SSI in 2017. Now a lot of companies talk only about decentralized identity. Maybe tomorrow it's... Um... I remember James calling it an unhelpful moniker. Uh, which we fully agree with. I'm glad he said that. Because, I mean, I've repeated it to a couple of my friends and colleagues and they look at me blankly. And because it's got the word sovereign in it. As a government, it scares the shit out of them because once you talk, like when you put the sovereign in it, like, okay, so you're an anarchist? What is this? It has this super libertarian connotation with it that as soon as you say self-sovereign, people think you are anti-establishment anti-government, anti-banks, you know, we'll do it ourselves. I say I'm Jimmy, so I'm Jimmy. But of course, that's not what this is about at all. Well, yeah, maybe we, we should start calling it decentralized identity. It's just unfortunate that SSI acronym is... I haven't heard a, the perfect term for it yet. I think self-sovereign identity, you know, it's been talked about for so long that it's just kind of almost established, embedded now. And we've seen as well in the past, so we experimented with some naming conventions as well. So calling it decentralized identity in the past, but then because of the, the blockchain element, there was a big assumption, uh, often also from, uh, from you know, journalists who are not technical experts in, in how the architecture looked, that they had perhaps logical assumption that uh, you would put a passport and put, you know, take a passport and put it directly on chain, which is personal private, personal identifiable information, put it on chain and perhaps don't see a, uh, a problem with that. And then what would happen is they would write about us and say like, oh yeah, Tycan puts passports on the blockchain. And then we would have privacy experts coming after us saying like, you shouldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, we know. So that that's another problem with saying decentralized identity because that's the connotation with that term. 
Well, maybe with you know the, the interview with James and the interview with both of you, we can start to demystify and clear some of the fog around actually how the solution works. So it's probably quite a good time to talk about or emphasize again the components, the component parts of the solution and how Tycan can help businesses build a solution and take away some of the fear of what it means to be able to implement something like that. So I know that you've got various actors that are involved in the solution and there, there are three main pillars. It might be worth just a quick recap on those and, and certainly on your website, and we'll put in links to your website, you've got some really good guides and you know, there's a great architecture diagram on there that just simplifies it in a picture that people can start to understand and get their heads around. So the pillars of decentralized identity. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to refer also to James' podcast. I think he, he gives some great explanations about uh, self-sovereign identity. But as to the pillars of it, uh, more technically, you essentially have uh, three technical pillars in the verifiable credentials, which are essentially natively digital documents uh, that are uh, watermarked by... Uh, the issuer and the holder, and it contains data, metadata, subject data. And this is something that's being standardized, or perhaps it's it's passed now, not quite sure, by the W3C. I think at least one of the models has passed now uh, as standardization. Uh, DITS, second pillar, decentralized identifiers. So there's, there's a difference between public and the private identifiers. I think easiest way to explain this is in an example including the third pillar, the verifiable data registry, often blockchain. So for instance, if the Dutch government were to say, okay, I want to issue you a digital version of your physical passport, they would have, as the Dutch government, a public identifier. Uh, this public identifier is tied to the institution and is anchored on the verifiable data registry, or the blockchain. And when they um, when they want to issue this passport, they do so as a verifiable credential, so the natively digital document as my passport. And now in between that, there's some other things that get put on chain. So for instance, uh, schemas are also public information. So the schema of the passport being first name, last name, uh, date of birth, uh, but just uh, really the, the fields or the forms itself. So really just the schema, the credential template gets put on chain and can be reused by others as well. So that just happens once. Uh, and with that, also the definition of the credential revocation registries, has this been revoked or not, which should also be public information, should not contain private information, but that all in all should be able to be. Uh, so in uh, issuing that credential, uh, there's an exchange of, of these uh, DIDs. Uh, so as a holder, you have a private DID that does not go on chain, it stays with you. And between those, peer-to-peer -peer encrypted channel is created. So when this credential is issued uh, to me as the future holder of this credential, this is between the institution, the Dutch government, and between me. Uh, a Tycan or whoever cannot see what happens in that pipeline. It's between them and between me, between in that peer-to-peer -peer encrypted channel. And then I sign that with my DID. I give you know the consent to receive it as well. And I save that in my wallet. And then if I now want to use this uh, for whatever reason, say I need to prove somewhere that I am a Dutch citizen, uh, that I'm over 18 uh, years old, and that my name is uh, Jimmy Snook, then I can, for one, I can selectively disclose my name and my last name and my nationality. 
and I can choose to mathematically prove that I'm over 18. So I can either disclose my full date of birth, uh, but I don't per se have to, because uh, I can also mathematically prove that I'm over 18 in zero knowledge as a zero knowledge proof. So this is a very important part because this is all about the data minimization that happens. You know, now when we uh, when we prove anything about ourselves, we tend to overshare a lot. And that's because the identity infrastructure is inherently still analog paper-based. And we've kind of hacked, a sol- hacked solutions to, t- to take that into the digital age. And that, of course, it, it doesn't work super smoothly. For instance, when you apply for a mortgage or uh, even uh, for a lease, to rent a house, you often have to give your entire life in financial information, identifying information. You have to give it all and you have to often upload it into a portal of, you know, some company where you have no idea where that goes, who sees it. And, you know, that's scary. And of course, all in all just contributes to the larger problem. But then the verifier in being presented with that information can look on chain to see, okay, what is this credential? that I derive, that this information is derived from, was that issued by the true Dutch government of whom I know this public identifier? And they see this on chain, like, oh yeah, this was signed by the public identifier of the Dutch government. And this proof has been derived from a credential issued by them. I see it's not been revoked. It's not expired. uh, And I can trust this credential. And so that all in all, is probably the boiling down self-sovereign identity to its core. So it's consent-based. So I accept the credential actively. Uh, I give consent to people taking information from me. I see who is the third party. This is something that James explained very well too, that uh, this is something between me and the issuer or verifying party with perhaps no third party in between. Or if there is, I can see who that is and I have a track record of it where in the future, it's easier for me to revoke that relationship. Because personally, also for me, you know, GDPR, great, but I do not have a list of the thousands of companies that have my data. The duplication of our identity documents around the world and different servers and databases is, you just probably don't even want to think about how many times transport, driving licenses and everything that's been shared. So it solves a great problem, not only for me as an individual, but for companies who now, you know, startups and stuff I work with, they have to continually solve for the problem, which is I've got to ask for all this identity for people. I've now got to store it. It's got to be secured. That's a burden for businesses. And I say this a lot on my podcast. For anyone who's listening, you might be going, oh, she's at it again, the burden for businesses. But it's a burden. And who, who wants it? If there's a solution like this out there. And, and the other thing that you mentioned there, which is the Dutch government issuing the schema of the digital certificate the digital document and then it's reusable so it means if the Dutch government has worked with a a company like yourselves and someone else to create this solution then some of the legwork is it true sorry that some of the legwork has been done for another company to come in behind it and say well the schema's already out there I can reuse that someone's going down that path and you're building on the you know building and building and building so this not only the technical infrastructure that you talked about, but some of the content type of infrastructure or um, content repositories, whatever you want to call it, that can be reused, presumably, are growing and building every day, every time a new solution comes into play. And that is surely going to give us the exponential growth 
that was predicted a few years ago might now be coming into play, you know, in the next two to five years. Absolutely. And that's also one of the misconceptions that was around uh, blockchain that I still sometimes hear from people that, oh, blockchain, that sounds expensive and slow, which in, in essence, in, in a lot of cases is true, but because so little, so, so few things have to be anchored on chain. Uh, this is almost a non-issue. So as a Dutch government, they can issue millions of credentials and it can cost them total maybe 10 transactions and a couple hundred, less than than 100 euros. Uh, because that schema that they create for a passport, that's once, that's one transaction. And then can and reading is free. Writing can be expensive, doesn't have to be, but reading is free. Uh, and a lot of it is reading. The more you start to look at this from a macro perspective, if a government saves costs, it's less taxes on people. You're not using paper. You're not using as much electricity because there's multiple copies of documents stored in servers around the world. Aggregates quite quickly into lots and lots of benefits for countries and their individuals. So talk to us about then what Tykin does in terms of being able to help get companies from nothing to something, a bit about your product set and, and how you can support them through that. Because great to talk about all this but how can we make it happen for businesses let's get more of these solutions in place we kind of already do uh, right right jimmy i mean the yeah like building products of course there is a lot of education that needs to happen educating only commercial uh, parties but also governments one project we can speak about for example our projects in turkey with the turkish government and the united nations development program and the chamber of commerce there and this is like also a typical project where you go with a lot of assumptions to the country and, and you speak with refugees and then suddenly you learn a lot of, for example, in Turkey, the goal was how can we improve the livelihood of refugees, uh, especially Syrian refugees. Turkey holds the highest number of refugees in the world. I think it was around three to four million. A highly smartphone penetrated, which is surprisingly, and we were looking like um, yeah, and the Turkish government was giving this temporary protection card to refugees so they can identify themselves and have access to services and travel, etc. And we thought, okay, maybe the, the easiest road is just to digitize this. But what we found out is that that's the least problem they have. They want to have enough loan, enough uh, salary uh, at the end of the month so they can improve the livelihood. And we thought, okay, since it's very difficult to prove that you are a refugee and you have a work permit, how can we improve that? So for, for example, employee employers there, they need to uh, apply for a work permit in case so they want to hire a refugee. But what you see a lot is that they actually, you know, either do it under the table or, or not hire refugees, which is an opportunity to actually be part of society and also contribute to the economic growth of where you're living to the host country. So this is like a case where you see that uh, shifting our focus from actually helping the refugee directly, we are helping the employers and we are giving this digital identity tool, tools to employers instead of refugees. Uh, so they can actually, we can digitize for them the whole application process for the work permit. And once they have a work permit as their employer, now they can show and prove that in, in a digital way and a very convenient way and be able to hire refugees. This is like, you know, a typical uh, use case where we learned different and uh, started implementing a different solution very quickly, just, you know, uh, with field trips. So if a business came to you tomorrow, say, 
would the first step in the journey be the education? I think from what we've built so far, I mean, we have iOS and Android apps that we white label, that we customize. We have a whole product suite in that way if someone wants to get started. If they want to get started by themselves, we also have APIs, API documentation that's really easy to get started, setting up wallets, uh, tying that even to one username uh, so that for people who switch out phones, switch out emails for as identifiers, but still want to be able to use this on the go in web apps or for feature phones, uh, for instance, we tie that in as well. Uh, being able to set up those wallets, issue credentials, verify credentials, all super easily through API calls, as simple as can be. We offer that all today. We are trying to make it easier to get that going from the website so that you don't have to directly give us a call or something. You just get those keys from the website. But otherwise, also, if there's any custom work that they need done or uh, they're interested in implementing this for their, for their current business, they can always send us uh, something through the website or contact us directly which we'd be happy to help. We'll certainly put the links to um, all your, to the website and anything else actually think that would be of interest. And so we're, what next for Tykin over the next uh, two to five years? Continue to expand or, well, you know, if I had you back on in two years time, well, what would you be wanting to see that you've been doing? I think some interesting catalysts coming up in SSI, decentralized identity or just identity management in general is a much higher involvement from governments. And uh, the EU, there's in the Netherlands working on, and I think this is an EU-wide effort actually, digital source identity, we call it translated. Uh, So to be able to easily pull uh, verified government information into a digital wallet uh, and being able to use that to open up bank accounts and, and all those sort of things, which of course is a brilliant enabler uh, for decentralized identity, SSI, whatever you want to call it. It's brilliant because now you have this high assurance credential that you can use and match with other data that you might collect in this wallet. Uh, and that opens us up to a lot more use cases and a, a very broad spectrum of different markets. Uh, because that's something that people often overlook with SSI, that it's all about privacy and security. And sure, that's at the, the core of the tech stack. But ultimately, it also absorbs a lot of these business inefficiencies where soon there's not just passwordless authentication, it's accountless authentication. I don't need to make an account for any website. I have all that information in my wallet. I can do things with one click, true one click and not having to take that data risk, You know, not having to take on those drop-off rates of going through uh, KYC. So you know, scan your face, scan your passport. It's brilliant to taking people from the analog to the digital, but ultimately it's a lot of friction. If you can take that out and you can with this, you can do it with one click. You know, this is something that, that we've been building out as well. You can do this stuff in one click, no more of that friction. It's a big cost for businesses. And responsibility. So that is the most exciting thing. Next two to five years, being able to do that, having that, you know, higher assurance use cases and like really making this uh, whole ecosystem bloom, putting it into everyone's hands without them even knowing and them taking us completely for granted and not even knowing who we are. That's the main goal. We need the governments, we need the regulators, we need the financial services regulators, we need the uh, information commissioner and the privacy regulators to be helping these solutions come to market. It's in everybody's interest. But I absolutely love this topic. It's a Friday afternoon, not that that matters for anyone. (laughs) For me, it's a great, interesting way to end the week with two musicians who, who are now working in technology creating solutions that benefit refugees. I mean, it's just fantastic, and as well as every other economic 
uh, potential though that we can think of at uh, this time on a Friday afternoon. So uh, unfortunately though that does bring us to the end of our podcast today. Have you got any final words for our listeners? Until this is all done, just use a password manager. I still see a lot of this, you know, people reusing their passwords. Uh, It's not entirely, you know, to do with self-sovereign identity and managing your credentials, but keeping this stuff secure on the internet, I think I will take any opportunity to drill that into everyone's brains. That's a really good tip, uh, Jimmy. (laughs) That's really good. It's effective. Khaled, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Well, uh, thank you for having us as, uh, anyway. And yeah, let's innovate together and uh, making the, the world a better place uh, every day. So that's our main goal. Well, what a goal for, a, for the end of the week. A small goal to take us into the weekend. <laughs> so thank you both very much. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And if to our listeners, if you have any questions, then I'm sure that Khaled and Jimmy will be very pleased to answer them. Just their contact details will be in the show notes. If you want to appear on the podcast, do let me know. But again, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, We've thoroughly enjoyed it. And on behalf of everyone listening, thank you very much. And I'll sign out now. That's it from me, Karen Heaton. Take care, everyone. Stay safe.